Thank you. Uh, thanks for the invitation. This has been great. Uh, the world is a big place, um, really big, uh, lots of stuff in it, lots of stuff going on. Uh, some people think it's really, really big. Maybe it's divided up into different little regions. We might call them universes, or maybe it's just, just really vast. Um, I won't fuss much about what's at, what's at issue and calling different things universes or what have you. I'm just interested in the world being really big. And then there's a familiar sort of point uh, that, you know, take a simple case of rolling dice. Um, I roll a die once, I got a chance of one-sixth of getting a six. I roll again, I got, still got a chance of one-sixth. Roll again, I still got a chance. Um, and the probability of any roll is independent of the outcomes of any other roll. Um, nevertheless, the more rolls I do, the more likely it is that I'm going to get a six on at least one of these rolls. Uh, familiar enough point, so probability that I'm going to get uh, one or more sixes in n rolls is going to be equal to that. Um, and then, and that is going to get larger and larger because the second term gets smaller and smaller. And if I roll forever, arguably, uh, the probability is going to go to one. So I got, it's, while it's not certain, while it's not guaranteed, it's not necessary that I get a six, uh, probability is one that I'll get a six. Um, but not just that. Um, what if I... Uh, keep rolling forever. Um, how many sixes should I expect to get? Uh, well, I should expect to get uh, this is probability one that I'll get infinitely many sixes because to suppose there's only finitely many sixes is to suppose at some point after that you get all non-sixes. And then what's the probability of getting an infinite run of non-sixes? Well, that's going to go to zero. Um, so uh, you're not only guaranteed to get um, sixes, you can, oh, well, it's not only probability one you get sixes, but that you'll get lots of them, you'll get infinitely many of them. They're not, not going to be all in a row, but spread out, you're going to get infinitely many. But then you're also going to get run, long runs of sixes. Uh, so for any number k, you're going to... Um, there's some probability that you'll get a run of k sixes uh, by the same reasoning. Uh, you can make the probability of getting a run of k6s as, long, as high as you like just by keeping on rolling. And then if you roll forever, uh, for any k, the probability is one that you will get infinitely many uh, runs of sixes that length. So that's the familiar sort of point. But then it seems it's going to apply a lot more to the, just the dice. It's going to apply to all sorts of stuff where things can randomly move together and join together in different ways. Um, all sorts of weird stuff is going to happen, and you know the story of the monkeys. If I put together infinitely many monkeys, then they're all going <laughs> to be typing away. This one, one of them just happened to type uh, knowledge and lotteries, but um, of course that was bound to happen given that there were so many monkeys. Um, but that's also going to apply whatever the chances are of life evolving, uh, given enough enough of space, enough planets, and so forth, then uh, you're going to get a life evolving infinitely many times. And you're going to get all kinds of varieties of life. Uh, in fact, you're going to get someone like this. Um, <laughs> but you're also going to get another one of them. Uh, so Keith, there's not only a Keith, but Keith has a doppelganger. Uh, 
Unlikely that his doppelganger is nearby, but um, if he went some light years out somewhere, he's going to find duplicate of himself. But actually, we're going to find lots of them and lots of them and lots of them. Um, not only will there be infinitely many Keith duplicates in the universe, um, there'll also be great big colonies of Keiths. So there'll be large, large regions of space where there's just trillions and trillions of nothing but Keiths. You have to go light years before you even find someone else who's not a Keith, anyway. Um, all of this sort of crap is out there. Um, so what I'm exploring is what conditional on assuming that the, some cosmologists claim that the um, universe is infinite like this, um, what should we make of it? Um, does it raise any epistemological puzzles, um, uh, say, about um, philosophy of religion? Um, well, it certainly does change our picture of the world. I think I don't feel so unique or special. I think I was taught in Veggie Tales that God made me special, but then that's not, that's not true. <laughs> we all have to feel this way. Um, nothing special about Keith, and you think, well, could God have a special, you know, special concern for Keith? I mean. Uh, there has to be some sort of special hexiotistic concern. I mean, if there's all these other duplicates in duplicate environments and so forth. Hmm. That might be a concern. Um, there might be good features of it. So uh, PVI the other day was regaling us with stories all about crazy philosophers and the funny things they've done, like Kripke and stuff. And, um, but they're the sort of stories where they're only funny if they're true. I mean, if you just made up a story about a hypothetical philosophy, you wouldn't find that funny. But when you hear it's Kripke or hear it's Jose Benedetti or something, the story's funny. Um, well, in an infinite universe, it seems you can just make up a story, and there'll be some region of space where it corresponds to something true, even if it's not. So there's something like this going out in space. <laughs> this, is not, this is not PVI. These are molecules arranged PVI-wise, but it's going on out there somewhere. Um, and, look, I just learned some newer uh, PowerPoint skills here. Yeah. Um, uh, what about uh, different religions? So, what we have, if you're worried by the problem of uh, religious pluralism, then that's magnified, because not only are there all these religions, uh, there's uncountably many religions, all the different tiny variations of doctrine you can imagine. There are whole communities out there who adhere to these different doctrines. And if you think there's epistemological worry, you might think, that's got to be magnified so much um, if there's so many more possible religions, actually people practicing them. Um, on the other hand, you might think, well, everyone kind of gets their religion to be true, or at least some of it. Like if you're a Mormon or something, then there is some space where someone like Jesus comes back to America and stuff like that. So as long as you're not too fussy about where the various events according to your religion occur, then you can, the world's going to kind of match up to the way you think part of it is. Um, so, but really that's raising the issue of disagreement. So um, uh, Jennifer, uh, she has a doppelganger. Jennifer's there, she's come to the conclusion that P. Uh, now, she has a, a doppelganger who's almost exactly uh, the same. Um, 
she's been exposed to exactly the same evidence, she's in exactly the same state and so forth. It's just that at some point her reasoning takes a slightly different turn and she ends up leaving not P. And if you're familiar with literature on uh, disagreement, a lot of the issue is over whether uh, the person you're disagreeing with is an epistemic peer. It seems on any way of understanding what an epistemic peer is, a perfect duplicate like this has got to be an epistemic peer. Uh, it's exactly the same evidence, we might say, exactly the same dispositions and so forth. And Jennifer might know that her duplicate is this perfect peer. Would this create a special, uh, particularly uh, vehement form of the problem of, um, uh, problem of disagreement? We could go out and pick one up and put it in front of Jennifer. Should this bother? Um, no, it shouldn't. Um, uh, I don't really think this sort of thing is a worry. Um, roughly the answer is, uh, in the case where there were just two, two people like Jennifer, two Jennifers here, um, it ought to be surprising to her that they disagree. Um, if she's confident in her answer, uh, she should expect um, the other twin Jennifer to, to agree with her. Uh, conditional on her being right, it's most likely that they'll agree. Uh, conditional on their being wrong, it's more likely that there'll be a disagreement. Um, so discovering that she has this twin um, uh, is more likely this twin disagreeing with her is more likely conditional on her being wrong in her answer than conditional on her being right. So that gives, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other complications to this, but on the face of it, you might think that gives her confirm this confirmation of her conclusion being right. Um, uh, an argument like that doesn't go through um, in the infinite universe. Uh, if it's just that she knows that there exist people, uh, duplicates of her that disagree with her, um, that's just screened off by the fact that there's so many people out there. Uh, it's to be expected that there'll be people disagreeing with her regardless of whether she's right or wrong. Uh, so it makes it no more likely that she's wrong, that there happen to exist people disagreeing with her. Um, uh, and she shouldn't be particularly bothered when we go out and fetch one and put it in front of her since we know we selected her on purpose to be a disagreer if we just... Um, went out and randomly selected someone out from the universe and put her in front of Jennifer, and it turned out to be someone that was disagreeing. That might be more worrying, um, but that would be more like the case in which there's just two people disagreeing. Um, the way, of course, in which you know, appeals to infinite universes have uh, been thought to have epistemological relevance is had to do with uh, design arguments where you might find certain uh, outcomes surprising and then it becomes less surprising in the light of the universe being infinite. Um, that's what I want to get to at the end. But um, before that, uh, I forget what's next, but hopefully, yes, Richard and the brain. Um, so some people have thought uh, Suppose that we, uh, Richard knows that he has a brain and vat twin, um, and that is subjective duplicate, or you know, what it's like to be. Richard is just what it's like to be this brain and a vat. Um, 
In that case, Richard would have to be sceptical. He'd be in no position to judge that he was the one actually sitting in the lecture theatre when he realises there's someone else just sitting in a vat, um, having all the same experiences. Now, that's controversial in a number of different ways, but let's just go along with the story as if we're assuming that his evidence consists just of sort of internal facts about how things appear to him. Uh, you can see a certain sort of plausibility to this sort of story. And then people are worried, well, look, if the universe is really big, then there are going to be brains like that out there. Uh, people are going to call Boltzmann brains. And then we've got this puzzle about um, a lot of those brains are having uh, exactly the same experience as Richard, but they're in very different scenarios. Um, why should he uh, think that he's one of the ones um, embodied? A natural thought is, well, if there's just two of them like this, uh, then he should be about 50-50. He's got no reason to think either way. Um, but if it was something more like if there was six of them and two of them were brains, uh, then he should divide them up equally. So this is roughly the idea that Nick Bostrom um, suggests saying observers should reason as if they were a random sample from the observers in their reference class. Um, it's the sort of thing that was going on a bit in Peter's talk. Uh, uh, but this is the sort of idea that um, if we know something about the statistics, if we know that the universe is really big and we know something about the statistics about how many people are in your evidential state and uh, how many of those people in your evidential state uh, in a certain situation, then uh, we should basically take those frequencies as a guide uh, to what your credence should be about your situation. Um, the problem comes, what if uh, there's infinitely many duplicates, or at least mental duplicates of Richard? Um, it's not just a matter of taking the proportions. Uh, there's going to be infinitely many brains, Boltzmann brains, and infinitely many embodied Richards. Uh, we can't just, I mean, so in that sense, there's equal numbers. What sense can we make of there being some proportion or something? Well, the sort of natural then thought is that, well, we should do something like, uh, given this ordering, we've put them all in a row like this, uh, we'll take the limiting relative frequency. Basically, we'll take larger and larger sets as we go up on the sequence and look at what frequency within that set um, of these duplicates are embodied. And then as that approaches some limit, as we keep on going forever, uh, that's the number that should uh, guide Richard um, and his judgment. So um, more generally, this is stuff that's been explored by uh, Kian Dorr and um, Frank Ansenius. Uh, um, so various examples like this, where all you know is that you're in some house. Um, you can't go outside the house and see what color it is. Uh, but you know that there's two reds and one green. Uh, it's very tempting to think that, well, your credence that you're in a greenhouse should be a third, two-thirds that you're in a red. Um, and then what if you know that there's a sequence of houses and they go red, red, green, red, red, green, red, red, green. 
Um, or it's not that they're in some simple pattern like that, but still you know that the relative frequency as you go off infinity, or if you go larger and larger sets out from some point, uh, is a third for green. Um, natural thought is that uh, you should have credence of a third. Um, I, I'm dubious of this whole idea. Now, there's all sorts of puzzles about this. The natural one is that uh, you can just reorder things. Um, uh, you can just shuffle them around so that instead of going red, red, green, they go red, green, green, red, green, green, red, green, green. Um, suppose you're in a house and you understood that the sequence was red, red, green. You, had, you gave it uh, the odds of a third that you're in a greenhouse. When we shuffle them around into this other ordering, should you change your credence now? And if we shuffle them back again, should you change it again? Or should you do some sort of averaging between the two? So there's a lot of puzzles about how uh, we're supposed to apply this sort of thing. Um, but I think there's reasons to be skeptical about uh, the whole approach. Um, suppose, so the, the puzzle is, when you have an infinite set like that, uh, in order to give some kind of limiting frequency like that, you need some kind of ordering. Um, so in this case, we're imagining they're all just in a row. Uh, if things are spread out in space throughout some infinite space, then we've just got this sort of spatial ordering. You could take larger and larger spheres out from where we are. Uh, but you might think, what's so special about the spatial ordering? There's other kinds of orderings. I can just make up an ordering. You could just take these and I can just create a function which jumps around and jumps around such that as you go up in this function, every trillionth house is green and uh, the rest of them are red. Um, why is the spatial ordering one that's supposed to be special rather than just all of these other uh, uncountably many possible uh, functions they could come up with. Um, and I suppose it's got to have something to do with, well, space is something real, it's something salient, it's some, some sort of physical significance to it. Uh, but I find it sort of mysterious what, what that is and what else could possibly count um, as the sort of relevant ordering. Um, so suppose I'm in a house each house is either red or green, but I have no idea about the spatial ordering of the houses. Um, or we can imagine they have no spatial ordering, if that's possible, if they just stand in no spatial relations to each other, uh, or in temporal relations to each other. Uh, what should my credence be then? Should, I mean, maybe we're tempted to say half or something, because they could be either red or green. Um, but then, what if uh, I'm in that state and then they're ordered in the red-red-green sequence? Uh, maybe I decide at this point, so I'm sitting in my house and I'm allowed to choose what order they'll be put in. And I say, I'd like them to go in red-red-green. Is it right that as soon as I make that decision, my credence should shift and I should be more confident that I'm in a red house? Um, but what if I don't know what order they're in, what spatial order they're in, but I'm told they're, we can order them in terms of size. Ah, 
So maybe they get smaller and smaller and smaller down to some minimum size and bigger and bigger up to some. Um, but then if we order them in terms of size, it's not the way they're ordered in space. I have no idea how they're ordered in space. But we're, in terms of how they're ordered in size, uh, they go red, 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 green, red, 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 green or something. Uh, should that information make me more confident that I'm in a red house than a green house? Um, and of course you can have cases where you've got a spatial ordering and a temporal ordering uh, and an ordering in terms of size and they all give us different frequencies. Um, then what are we supposed to do? Hmm? Or what if um, someone went out and labeled them and maybe they use something where they start with some house and then they go to the next red one and they stick a number one nail it to the door. And then they go to the next closest red house and stick a number two. Then they pick a next, the next green house they see and put a three. Then they go back to a red one, put a four. Um, and that's all I know about this. I don't know anything about the spatial ordering. I just know that someone's gone around and hammered numbers on them. So these numbers are really salient. Bunch of numbers. Uh, and I know that as you go up in order of these numbers, uh, the numbers go, the houses go red, red, green, red, red, green. Um, and then I'm asked, uh, suppose I know what my number is, it's 57 or something, and then, I don't know if that would make a difference, but then I'm asked, how confident are you that you're in a greenhouse? Um, is that supposed to, is that kind of ordering supposed to work as a guide uh, for me to judge what my credence should be about my color of my house? Um, or I might just label them mentally. I'm just sitting in my house and I say, okay, whatever the closest red house is, let that be house number one. Whatever the next closest red house is, let that one be number two, so forth. So now I've just attached numbers to them in my mind. But I've done it in such a way that as you go up the numbers, every third house that I've picked out by this method uh, is a green one. Then should I change my credence? Um, so that's just some of the oddities about uh, trying to appeal to uh, some information to assign credences when you've got uh, some sort of information about relative frequencies um, uh, given some ordering. Now, some people say, well, there's got to, something like this has to be right, at least in the finite case. Um, some principle like this uh, is right. We use this sort of thing all the time, I think. If you know that X is one of the Fs, and um, you know the percentage of Fs that are Gs, uh, now, of course, you're going to use that as a guide to your judgment about whether X is a G. If you know that 20% of people are left-handed, um, I'm going to think 20% you know, credence that uh, that Hans is left-handed. Um, now, of course, that can be easily overridden by maybe if I see him writing with his left hand or something. Um, lots of things could change it. Uh, then you've got various puzzles about, well, what if I also know 40% of people with glasses are left-handed or something? And I've got various overlapping classes with different statistics. How do I put those together? Um, no one has a really good theory about this. Uh, 
But still, it's very tempting to say something like this. Look, if that's all I've got to go on, I've got nothing else bearing on the question of uh, whether Hans is left-handed, except that 20% of people are left-handed, then my credence should be 20%. Um, you think so? Surely we should be doing something like that uh, in the case of the houses. Um, um, now, I think this idea is closely related to the notorious principle of indifference. Uh, it says something like, well, if you've got a couple of propositions um, and you've got no more reason to think that one's true than another. It's sort of, as far as your evidence goes, doesn't distinguish between them. Uh, then you should have equal credence uh, in them. Um, uh, now, principle of difference is nor notoriously problematic and the, in John's talk, I guess, the issue of the uh, the cube factory puzzles or what caused trouble for the principle of indifference. I have given some kind of defense of it before. I'm less comfortable with it these days. Um, but there are worries about it and still I think most uh, people who work on their stuff are really bothered by this sort of principle. Um, so far as you do have worries about the principle of indifference, I think you ought to have worries about what I'm calling frequency credence, uh, because actually um, frequency credence entails uh, the principle of indifference. Um, you just have to let F be being a member of the set P and Q, uh, let G be the property of being true. Uh, principle of indifference says that you're going to have to give 50% credence to Right, the frequency credence principle uh, will say you give 50% credence to P and Q. Um, um, so you ought to worry about the frequency credence principle um, if you worry about the principle of indifference. Um, do we need these principles? Uh, well, one sort of thought is people say, oh, our best guide to assigning credences is known chances. Uh, uh, various examples where people say that they're appealing to something like a principle of indifference. Really, there's some sort of implicit knowledge in the background about the chances involved, whatever chances are. Um, and then chances, yeah, so chances can be a guide to uh, credence. And then frequencies are a guide to chance. Um, tossing a coin lots of times and observing how many times it lives head. And heads gives you a good guide to what uh, its chance is, and that gives us an assignment of credence. So, um, uh, I think that's principles like that are all that's going on when we assign credences on the basis of frequencies we have. We're using frequencies to give us some estimate of the chances, and using chances as a guide to the uh, as a guide for our credences. Um, um, but other people would say, no, it can't be like that, for this sort of argument. Um, look, frequency information can override any information about uh, chances. Um, I don't have to know um, what the chances are. Uh, suppose I've got a bunch of coins and uh, I toss 10 of them um, all I know is that eight out of ten of them, and they're all put in these boxes, eight out of ten of them landed heads. Um, uh, what's my credence that the coin number three landed heads? 
Uh, so first take the case in which I know that the chance of each one is a half. Um, uh, I have actually heard some people say, no, your credence should be a half, because you know the chance is a half. I think that's clearly wrong. I think, no, your credence should be uh, 0.8. It shouldn't be 8. That's what that <laughs> says. I don't have my glasses on. Uh, um, anyway, one argument says, well, of course, your credence should be 0.8. If you know that 8 out of 10 of them landed heads, then what's your credence that the third one is a head? It should be 8, 0.8. Um, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, even if you're sure that the coins are fair, even if you're sure that the coins are highly biased, even if you think they have a, or if you think they're highly biased on tails, and so each one had a very high chance of landing heads. If nevertheless you know that eight of them, eight out of ten of them, uh, landed heads, then you should have credence of 0.8 that the third one landed heads, and similarly for each one of them. Um, or similarly, if you have no idea what the chance is, these are just weird coins that could have any kind of bias. Um, that's beside the point. Um, and so I've heard this suggested as an argument for why, no, th there must be some more basic principle along the lines of what I was calling a frequency chance principle, uh, frequency credence principle, um, which explains why it is that we should have credence of 0.8. Uh, I don't think that's right. Um, I think it just follows from the principle principle that a credence should be 0.8. Um, now, I won't go into the technical explanation of this, but basically, uh, conditional on any chance, if we think each coin has the same chance, uh, then we're going to have a whole lot of different possibilities of how the coins will land. Um, you're going to give equal credence to the ones in which uh, all of those uh, sequences such that three out of ten of them uh, landed heads. Um, and then there'll be a whole bunch of different, there'll be ten choose three different ways of such sequences in which you get three out of ten of them landing heads. Um, but exactly three out of ten of those possible ways of arranging three heads out of ten are going to be ones in which three gets to be a head. Um, and so it's still going to work out with the credence uh, 0.8 got ahead. That probably made no sense at all, but um, anyway, that's why I think uh, we don't need to appeal to such uh, principles like this, like the frequency credence principle. Um, so then Christina's doing uh, an urn problem. Um, so the next question is, what am I doing? <laughs> these are urns, and you just pull the marble out of them, okay. and you're right. <laughs> and you're very happy about it. <laughs> <And you're laughs> I'm holding you, a, a light strip. Are there anything that can pull the marble? You used that, you didn't want to touch the yeah. <laughs> Um So, uh, sorry, let me back up and think. Um, <coughs> the story you get from Bostrom, and I think maybe from Kean and Frank and stuff, is that we've got this problem. Uh, if we think the universe is infinite, 
then we know that there's infinitely many people who have my evidence, and some of them, their conclusion is right, and some of their conclusion is wrong. Um, we need some sort of guide from this information to tell us what my credence should be uh, in my case. And it looks as though it's going to have to be some kind of principle which appeals to what we know about the frequencies or something. And so if we were told that the frequency is a third, uh, a third of the people who have this evidence, so a third of the people who have Christina's evidence in her situation, having pulled out a green marble, perhaps she's then she should have credence for third, whatever conclusion she draw about, say, which marble, which urn she pulled it out of. Um, but, so, problem is, what if there were lots of Christinas? It'd be an infinite string of them. But I think there's the wrong way to think about this. It's not that, so, one of the cases we've been discussing where it's just stipulated that this is the frequency in the sequence. Something. So we've got infinitely many houses, and each one is either red or green. And it's been stipulated that you know that every third one is red or something. Um, and then what do you do with that information? Uh, but that's not the situation that we're actually in when we discover that the universe is infinite. Um, our judgment about the frequencies are derived from probability judgments we've made about ordinary local stuff. Um, so we don't need some special principle. For Christina to work out the probability that this ball she picked out came from own A or own B, she doesn't need some sort of principle about uh, taking some information about the frequency in the infinite sequence of Christina duplicates. Um, she just has to do the probability of the problem the way you would normally. Um, it's not that the frequencies are guiding her in what um, probability she should sort of assign to which urn she pulled the marble out of. That's the other way around. She should just do the problem she would if she was just alone, based on whatever information she has. Um, if she comes up with the answer one third, then she should use that as a basis for thinking, well, most likely the frequency is a third in the sequence of, of infinite sequence of Christina duplicates. Um, so it suggests that we really don't need some sort of principle like this if we discover uh, that the universe is infinite like that. It's not really going to make a difference about how we reason about ordinary stuff like this. Um, but could it make a difference to anything? Um, well, it would seem to. So in the case of fine-tuning argument, uh, it seems to make a difference if there are infinitely many universes. Um, if, we, if you're initially impressed by a fine-tuning argument and you think there's something very puzzling about the fact that the constants are just right for life, well, and if you take that as evidence for a design, but then you find out that, the, well, there's infinitely many universes and so it's bound to be that in some universe or other, um, uh, that one would just by fluke turn out to be right for life. It seems as though that uh, knocks the wind out of the argument. Um, and I think it does, but the tricky question is why does it and how far does that sort of reasoning extend? Um, 
So the natural thought is, well, sure, if there was just one universe, that would be surprising. But it's not so surprising if there's lots of universes. Um, so it's really surprising that the monkey just once typed John's book. Um, but it's not so surprising that there were all these monkeys, and then one of them had his book. Um, but it can't be that any sort of case in which we find something surprising uh, turns out to be unsurprising once we say, oh, but the universe is infinite, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, presumably, it still would be surprising if a monkey sat in a typewriter and typed John's book, and then the physicist said to us, oh, it turns out the universe is infinite. We're not going to go, oh, okay, so. <laughs> okay. Um, two students come to, uh, you get two student papers that are identical, uh, and you think this is evidence that they plagiarized, but they come to you and say, look, the physicists have just shown us the universe is infinite. <laughs> this sort of stuff that is happening all over the place. There are infinitely many pairs of students who just happen <laughs> by fluke to write two identical papers. Uh, there's no reason to be surprised about this or draw any other conclusions from it. Um, so I don't think it's an entirely straightforward matter. Why would we think that uh, the fine-tuning argument is undermined. Does that mean that all design arguments are undermined? What about Hume's voice in the clouds? If I hear, hear the voice, uh, should I be like, ah, okay, so there's a voice in the clouds. Um, that sort of stuff is happening all over the place. Um, so, for a rough sketch of what's going on in these cases, um, so the general idea is uh, some events are surprising. Um, now, surprising here is used in a special sort of sense. It's the sort of idea that you think there's some events where you think that's just, well, so what? That's just how things turned out. Uh, when the monkey just types a string of gibberish, you think, yes, it was highly unlikely. Um, it's just as unlikely that you would get that string of gibberish than you would get um, an equally length string of consisting of John's book. Um, that one's surprising and the other isn't. Uh, uh, one, you might think, calls for explanation, whereas the other doesn't. Uh, uh, what does that sort of distinction consist in? Um, here's a rough suggestion. Uh, it's similar to things other people have said, but a bit different. I won't go into why it's different. But um, So if you let C be something like our initial causal assumptions, um, <coughs> The assumptions we're making on the basis of which we assign some probability to some outcome A. Um, so it might be that when the monkey sat down at the typewriter, I was assuming that it was just a regular monkey. Uh, um, I assumed that the two students were, were not plagiarizing or they were working independently. Um, uh, if the outcome is more to be expected on the denial of those sorts of assumptions I'm making, um, then it's surprising. Because uh, when that inequality holds, um, the outcome gives us some reasons to doubt the assumptions we've made. That's why I come to doubt that it really was just a monkey typing randomly away. I think rather someone rigged the monkey or did something. Uh, uh, that should be the explanation of why um, uh, life is surprising. Well, 
the universe meets the conditions of life. Surprising if you're thinking that it just happened by chance. Um, so I'm letting sort of the denial of that just be open-ended, not having any specific alternative in mind, although often it will be the case that there's some alternative in the mind that makes that denial sort of salient, um, like that it was designed or something. Um, so in the case of life, uh, if you find it surprising that the universe is fine-tuned for life, I think it ought to be because that in some way upsets the assumptions you had about the mechanisms which gave rise to the universe. Um, perhaps because you're assuming that there was no agent involved or something. And so, so far as you think it's somewhat more likely that you'd get a universe suited for life um, given the workings of an agent, then... Um, you might find it surprising because discovering the world has life will upset. Um, give some disconfirmation of that assumption. Um, then what happens if we discover that there's a multiverse, there's infinitely many universes? Well, it just screens off that inequality. Um, it's to be expected that there's going to be life, uh, given that there's a multiverse, uh, regardless uh, of our assumptions. Uh, yes, there is. <laughs> it's true. It's whatever. True. <laughs> 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 whatever. <laughs> but, uh, That's surprising the way you say it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be even better if there was, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there should be a, there should be one right there, you see. Yeah. Uh, pointing yeah. Just draw on the screen. Uh, yeah. uh, So I think, in general, that's the question to ask, is uh, does some sort of plenitude hypothesis like that, um, like lots of monkeys, uh, screen off um, this inequality between um, the outcome and these sorts of causal assumptions? Um, in the case of the plagiarizers, I think not. Um, my assumptions particularly had to do with these two, that they weren't copying from a common source or something. Um, that there's lots of other people in other universes doing stuff like that and randomly writing papers of the same sort. Uh, that doesn't screen that off, makes me more likely. Um, so that's my sketch of how we should think about why some appeals to multiplicity like this uh, will make some things less surprising whereas other appeals to multiplicity, uh, plenitude, don't. Um, so that's that. Thank you. I'm done. <laughs>